turn to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, Matthew 25. While you're turning, let me just say, I know it's hard to believe, but I have come to the last message in the series, the long-running series on the parables of Jesus. Can you believe that? 41 messages, not that many parables necessarily, but we didn't get done with each one in one message. They were not all preached in chronological order, but um, there's, there's a rhyme and a reason to the order in which they were preached. You can group the parables together in several different ways, not just chronologically or even geographically where Jesus was when He gave them. We have parables of the kingdom, parables of the kingdom in spiritual form on earth, we have several parables about prayer, and so we kind of took them together, especially persevering prayer. There's a trilogy of parables in Luke 15 about lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son. There are parables about the Christian life, the most well-known being the Good Samaritan. But then there are parables about the hereafter, things to come and eternal judgment, and this falls in that category. I believe Jesus saved the best till last, and uh, the parables about His coming, we'll say more about that in a moment, but let's read the first 13 verses that take in this parable. You read silently as I read aloud. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, their torches, and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, the foolish ones, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Jesus' comment, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. This parable falls in line with a, a whole barrage of parables about the second coming toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And they comprise part of what we know as the Olivet Discourse, with great prophetic truth found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Five parables in a row. The fig tree, the thief in the night, the wise and wicked servant, the ten virgins, the one here, and the talents. We're coming up on the 4th of July before long, and so this will make sense when I say it. Just like fireworks on the 4th of July, 
the most spectacular parables come in a rapid-fire flurry at the end. Don't you love to see the grand finale of the fireworks? Well, this is the spiritual fireworks. They come in rapid-fire succession. And the parable of the ten virgins is unique among all of these that talk about or point towards Jesus' return. Because most of the others speak of the absence of the Master, and it emphasizes working while the Master is gone. This parable is different. It talks about our lives, the attitude of our heart, what's on the inside while the Master is gone. It does not describe the kingdom now, but what it will be like when Jesus comes. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened. That's the way it opens. Then. Yet our lives now need to be ordered by what will happen then. Amen? We need to live in the light of the second coming of Jesus. Now, you, you can't appreciate this parable unless you understand something about the culture and the times. And the, This is an oriental wedding. Uh, if you were to hear in our culture about a midnight wedding to which... The bridegroom arrives late, it would kind of strike you strange. Maybe you know something like that, but probably not. Probably that hasn't happened to anybody here. That's exactly what happened here, and this was not unusual in the Jewish culture of Bible times. Weddings were completely different from our Western culture and traditions. Many of you know this, but be patient with me as I explain for those who may not have heard it. In Bible times, in connection with a wedding, there would be a formal betrothal which was much more festive and much more binding than our Western practice of engagement. During this betrothal period, the bridegroom would go to prepare a home for his bride. It would usually be a year or more before the home was finished, and he would come often unannounced even at midnight, to claim his bride and to take her, often by a torchlight procession, to the home he had prepared for her. And there would be different stations along the way where people would join the procession. And when this procession finally reached the bridegroom's home, all the people would enter into the home with a couple to celebrate their nuptials in a feast that would last for days. You can be thankful for that a reception only lasts an hour or two. It would last for days in Bible times. You didn't have a lot of other things to go to. And once everybody who was invited got in, the door was shut so that curiosity seekers and freeloaders couldn't get in. That's the picture here. We need to understand that. Now let's examine why Jesus called five of these ten virgins wise, and the other five foolish. God never calls anybody a fool or even calls them foolish without good reason. There are three paramount features in this, in this story that we need to look at, and they're laden with profound meaning. Three features. Number one, I see in this parable the professing church. This is all about a wedding. 
I think you saw that. We've talked about it. But did you, did you see something glaringly missing? No bride. The bride is not mentioned at all. Bridegroom, guests, procession, virgins, no bride. Now, that doesn't mean the bride's not there. It doesn't mean she's not implied. In all likelihood, this procession included the bridal party. But the ten virgins spoken of here clearly represent the professing church. And so to introduce a bride as well as the virgins would be confusing. The parables Jesus gave have one major point. Not everything stands for something. That would be an allegory. Jesus does not confuse people by introducing a bride here. This is not the only place in the Bible where the invited guests represent the church. I won't have you turn there, but I would just urge you to make a note and study it later. Would you read Psalm 45? The 45th Psalm, it speaks of the virgin companions, the virgin companions who with gladness and rejoicing shall be brought into the king's palace. A definite parallel situation and passage. I say this represents the professing church. Why do I say professing church? Because mingled among the wise are the foolish. If you had seen all ten of these virgins, they probably all looked alike. Probably all dressed alike. And so there are tares among the wheat. We've already seen that in another place in this series. And so there are hypocrites among true believers. But if Jesus said anything about hypocrites, He said it's all going to come out one day. They're going to be exposed. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Wise virgins... Foolish virgins. The wise are wise because they have the oil, and this oil no doubt symbolizes, for the most part, the Holy Spirit. I'll explain and elaborate on that in a moment. Verse 3 tells us that the foolish took no oil with them, but verse 4 states that the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. They took extra oil. They took oil in a flask. That's hugely significant. There's nothing more useless in Bible times than a lamp or a torch that has no oil in it. The Holy Spirit is often represented in the Word of God by the symbol of oil, especially with the anointing oil of the Old Testament that fell upon prophets and priests and kings. And so the Bible says in Romans 8, verse 9, very clearly, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. As I look out on 350 to 400 people here today, probably. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. You don't have a dilution. Oil and water don't mix anyway. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. Notice that these virgins with the oil are called wise. They are not worldly wise. They're not like the ones that Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when he said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Went on to say that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The wisdom of these virgins, these five virgins, is not worldly wisdom. 
It's spiritual wisdom. Please note that believers are not reckoned in the cool crowd. They're not wise, esteemed wise in the eyes of this world. They're esteemed as fools. I'm telling you, in, in the church in America, we have become so sensitive to what people think about us. We want the thumbs up on all of our postings. We want the positive reviews. I'm not sure Paul would have gotten a positive review. I know John the Baptist wouldn't. Are we willing to be esteemed fools for Christ's sake? These five virgins were wise because they not only had oil in their lamps, and let me just stop and say, but if you examine the custom back then, they, they would have a, a pole, and at the end of it there would be a, a dish, and there would be some kind of cloth wick, some kind of rope or cloth wick dipped in oil in the dish. So there would be olive oil in the dish, and then there would be extra olive oil in the flask. Okay, that's, that's what's in view here. So they had oil in their lamps, but the wise virgins also had flasks with them, vessels, it says in the King James, with additional oil. Why? They anticipated this likely delay in the bridegroom's arrival. They were wise. Why? The only reason mentioned is they took an extra supply of oil. And if you're wise, and you really have the Holy Spirit, you will give evidence of that wisdom by seeing things as they are. How we need believers to manifest the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. To see time as it really is, the threshold of eternity. To see yourselves the way God sees you. You have no natural light in you. There is no spark of divinity in you. I'm real concerned about the reemphasis of the image of God in man. The way a lot of preachers, even well-known preachers, are using this theme and the way they're talking about it. It's, it's, it's like they're talking about a spark of divinity on the inside. We lost the image when we sinned. Jesus Christ restores the image of God. Don't give me this Imago Day business talking about lost people. It's getting real quiet. They saw Christ as He really is, holy as well as loving and compassionate. He's the judge of all men. He will, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, shut the door. He's the judge of all men. The wise see things as they really are. The wise live for eternity. These wise virgins took oil in their flask, not just in the dish at the end of the lamp torch, at the end of the pole. They had a supply with which to replenish their lamps. Now let me hasten to add, so you're not confused here. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's how Jesus is with you. He's with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Aren't you glad of that? The oil will never run out. But perhaps it would be more accurate to say that the oil here is a symbol. Are you listening? I want to be, I want to be careful and precise and accurate. 
The oil is a symbol of the inward change wrought by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, the new birth, is permanent. It lasts. You cannot be born again and then get unborn. You will endure. You'll persevere. But the hypocrite lives only for a time, spiritually. Judas only cared about the here and now. Judas proved that he was a hypocrite. Classic study, Judas. If he was not going to be able to ride Jesus' coattails to power and wealth and a temporal earthly kingdom, he was just going to cut his losses and get out of there. That's exactly what happened. He proved he didn't have the Spirit. He proved he was a a devil from the beginning. The wise have the Spirit. They give evidence of having passed a, a, a real change, a lasting change. But the foolish do not have the Spirit. These foolish virgins were foolish because they took no extra oil. Again, I emphasize, on the surface, in, in several points, they resembled the wise virgins. Looking at them, you couldn't have told hardly any difference. First of all, they were virgins, just like the wise ones. None but virgin souls are said to be invited. That may well speak to their morality and their reputation in society. As I've already said, all ten of these virgins looked alike to outward appearance, probably all dressed in white. Their faces were fair. Maybe they'd gone through beautification treatments in anticipation of this wedding. Perhaps they'd all been purified with oils and and perfumes, just like Esther had been. They all looked like they had the same object in view. They all had the same outward behavior, but there was a critical difference. We'll say more about that in a moment. They were all virgins. They all received the same invitation. We've seen in other parables how all are invited to the gospel feast. It may not have been a wedding feast, but it was a gospel feast. Ten virgins. Ten is a, numbers are important in the Bible. Ten is a number of completion. Ten commandments. The woman in the um, parable about the lost coin had ten coins. She lost one of them. Ten is a number of completion. But when it comes to the professing church, we need to realize the Bible says, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. I've had people say to me, Pastor, you're so passionate in your preaching. Sometimes I'm not sure they mean it as a compliment. Sometimes they may. Sometimes they say in certain words, why are your sermons so heavy? Why don't you just let up a little bit? Why don't you be a little bit more entertaining? Why don't you just let your hair down? Why don't you just be a little bit more folksy and relational? That's a big buzzword these days, relational. Could I answer that question? The reason I am not more relational, more folksy, more entertaining, and tell more jokes, I have a haunting fear every time I get up here in this pulpit and have to speak for God, 
that some of you who hear me and some have heard me for years and you come every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, you look good, you dress up for church, you're kind, you're respectful, you're orthodox in your doctrine, you love the music here, the conservative music, you enjoy the fellowship, you love to discuss the fine points of prophecy, you give your tithes and your offerings, you know the lingo, you fit in outwardly, but I'm a, I have a haunting fear that you do not have the Spirit of God on the inside. You've never been born again. You do not have eternity's values in view. You are temporal. You are fleshly. You have not the Spirit. And I cannot pander to your carnal complacency. I can't deliver an anesthetic when the Spirit of God wants to do a painful work. I just don't joke about that. I'm sorry if that doesn't suit you. But I have 45 minutes to try to deliver what thus saith the Lord, and the devil has the world speaking to you the rest of the week. Uh, Many are called. Few are chosen. These foolish virgins were just like the wise ones, and they took lamps. They must have had oil in their lamps, at least in the little dish at the end of the pole, because in verse 8 they told the wise virgins, our lamps are gone, literally going out. So they had to have some oil. Now, are you a little bit confused at this point? I can appreciate that if you are. How can one have the Holy Spirit and yet not have the Holy Spirit? How can someone have oil for a time, but then the oil runs out? Is this speaking about the loss of salvation? I don't think so but it deserves looking into for an answer. I believe this symbolism here is analogous to the often misunderstood warning found in Hebrews chapter 6. And I know I'm rushing in where angels fear to tread today, but I'm going to do it anyway. You turn to that passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Often misunderstood passage. One of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Notice that phrase. Partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. The critical word in the Greek there is the word for partakers. It does not mean possession If you need to write this in your Bible, please do so. It means association. It is possible to be associated with the Holy Spirit. It is possible to witness His work. It is possible to be around where He is and where He ministers and yet not be saved. Classic case is found in Acts chapter 8 where Simon Magus is described who is impacted by the preaching of Philip who goes down to the city of Samaria and preaches Christ unto them. And he, along with many others in the city, received the Word of God with joy. He's baptized. He really wants to get involved with the Holy Spirit. He wants to have the conferring of the Holy Spirit upon him by the laying on of hands. But Philip, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, has discernment, and he calls his bluff. He realizes he's not a true disciple. He was not saved. I want to be careful, I want to be discerning, I want to be accurate here, but I also want to make sure I don't miss the point. 
Beloved, it's one thing to taste the Word of God as that passage talks about. It's another thing to eat it. It's one thing to be enlightened. It's another thing to be enlivened, born again. It's one thing to be associated with the Holy Spirit. It's another thing to be possessed and indwelt by the Spirit of God. I'm not splitting hairs here. This is being discerning. This is, as Paul says in one of his epistles, approving things that differ. Let's examine ourselves in the light of God's Word. The foolish virgins took lamps, and they had some oil in the lamps. They didn't have any in the flask. Like the wise virgins, they also went forth to meet the bridegroom. It says there in verse 1, alludes to it in verse 6. They went forth. May I remind you, and I know this gets even more scary, but some of us need to be scared. There are people who walk with Christ for a time. They love to come to church. They love to hobnob with Christian people. For one thing, it's safe. Saddam Hussein let only Christians watch his kids, though he was a Muslim. He knew he could trust Christian people. He wasn't saved. They walk with Jesus for a time. They think they love Jesus. They're fascinated with Him. They study His words, His life. But they're like those who followed Jesus for a time in the Gospels because He fed their bellies with the loaves and fishes. They know a good welfare system when they see one. They're just serving a utilitarian God. When they rub God the right way, they expect a genie to jump out and say three wishes. They may even go to church for a time. They, they, they may even flee old companions and old ways. They cling to godly people. But let me tell you, at one point, they're going to be torn from them. Has happened here. They don't have the real stuff on the inside. So I plead with you today. Could it be that you are a hypocrite? You may look like a saint, but you're one of the ain'ts. You may think you're following Jesus, but it's all about you and your mind. It's not about Him. You don't get righteousness by osmosis just being around Christian people. One day the day will declare it. What is on the inside? If it doesn't happen before, it'll be the day of Christ's appearing. These five foolish virgins had a lot of similarities to the wise ones outwardly. But there was a contrast with the wise at the crucial point. Who had oil in their flask? Who had oil in their vessel? And when we have oil in our vessel, when we truly have the Holy Spirit in a saving way, it's going to show up. It's going to manifest itself. We will be taught by the Spirit. Every true believer is taught by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 54, verse 13, where it says, All thy children shall be taught of God. All thy children shall be taught of God. Every single one of God's children. That's why those who are truly Christ's sheep will not follow a stranger. They will flee from the false cults. 
It's a strange voice. It doesn't pass the smell test. I heard of somebody this week who just, when he walked on a certain place, he just didn't feel right. And he got out of there. Thank God for that. If you're taught by the Spirit, you'll get out of there if Jesus isn't there. If you have the Holy Spirit, you'll not only be taught by Him, you'll be indwelt by Him. If any man have not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. The Spirit indwelling every believer is an earnest. We read that word several times in the New Testament. You know what earnest money is when you want to buy a house. It's like a down payment. It shows you're serious. It's a guarantee that you're going to come up with the rest of the money. The fact that God has given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts is a guarantee that He's going to redeem fully spirit, soul, and body. But there are some who resist the Spirit. Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. Stephen, the early martyr, charged his persecutors even before they started stoning him. He said in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. And so I'm just going to go on record here today. If you have not repented of your sin, if you have not truly savingly received Christ as your Lord, you are guilty of the sin of unbelief. You may think that you are neutral and you're just tolerant of all religions, but you are resisting the Holy Spirit. You are in danger of blaspheming Him. It's a serious matter to be deficient in the Spirit, folks. If this parable says anything, it says that. So that's the professing church. And I know it's almost noon, and I spent a long time on that point. But I have two more points. I hope you'll hear me out. The shocking professing, uh, uh, professing church, but secondly, the defining event. Verses 5 through 10 describe the main action that brought out the best in the wise virgins, but it brought out the worst in the foolish virgins. And you know what that is. It was the coming of the bridegroom. The great pastor and theologian G. Campbell Morgan, who was a predecessor to Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel, he said this. He said, this event marks the sifting of Christendom at the end of the age. I like that. The sifting of Christendom at the end of the age, the second coming of Christ, will either purify or it will harden. Notice verses 5 and 6 again. While the bridegroom tarried, that's important, that word tarried, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Let's talk about that coming. The bridegroom cometh. Two things are emphasized about this coming. I want to be true to the passage I'm not trying to just alliterate. I'm not trying to just have a balanced outline. I want to tell you what the passage says. It doesn't matter what I make of it. It matters what God's Spirit intends for you to get from it. Two things about the coming of the bridegroom. Number one, it's a delayed coming. That's the meaning of the word tarried. While the bridegroom tarried. While he delayed his coming, often we'll use the expression, and it's not an unscriptural one. If the Lord tarries his coming, thus and thus we expect to happen, or we will do thus and thus. But I hope you realize we're just accommodating the sense of what seems to be. Actually, the coming of Christ will be right on schedule, amen? 
But sometimes it's, he seems to tarry. It's a delayed coming. And in that sense, we need to study the reasons for it. What are the reasons for Christ's tearing? Well, we already talked about one in a recent message, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It reminds us that while skeptics are coming in the last days and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For all things continue as they were from the foundation of the world. Uniformitarianism, I hope you know what that means. That's the argument of many. Why does He tarry? The reason is, and, and Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish. He's long-suffering to usward. He wants all to come to repentance. But the very next verse says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Right on schedule. Jesus tarries His coming, if indeed it seems like He's tarrying, to give unsaved people space to repent. Some of you have loved ones that are not in the ark of safety. Oh, I urge you, seek to woo and to warn and to pray and to compel, yes, in the biblical sense of the word, those loved ones to come into the wedding feast before the bridegroom comes and shuts the door. But there's another reason that Jesus tarries, the bridegroom tarries his coming, and it applies to us as believers, not to the lost. He wants to develop patience in us as we wait on our Lord. Jot down these references quickly, if you will. James chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And James goes on to say, like the farmer, the husbandman waits for the rain, the early and the latter rain. He's patient about it. He doesn't just assume that it doesn't get rain right away, that crops aren't going to come up, and he tears them up and puts something else down. No, he waits patiently for the rain. The Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians to wait for God's Son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. During this time of waiting, while our bridegroom tarries, it's very important preparation for us. We need to be using it to the best advantage. We need to be, realize God is trying the graces of His people. He wants our faith to grow. It is exceedingly precious in His sight. He wants us to learn to forgive injuries because we're going to be wronged in more ways than we've ever experienced before. We need to be willing to bear reproach for the sake of our Savior. We need to be able to do what Paul said he, he did to the, to the Colossians. We need to fill up that which is behind, that which is still lacking, lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Yes, in a very real sense, Jesus has not finished His sufferings. He's suffering through us. What a privilege to complete that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And when He comes, and we've done all that, His coming will be so sweet. We will truly love His appearing. It'll be a deliverance. I want you to notice not only the reasons for Christ's tearing, but the results of His tearing. Verse 5 gives a sad commentary on the professing church. I wish I could get as dramatic and passionate as I need to be about this, but you'll just have to put up with my limitations. While the bridegroom tarried, they all, all ten, slumbered and slept. There's a difference between these two words. The word in the Greek for slumbered comes from the word that means to nod. And I see a lot of that when I preach for 45 minutes. 
and it's not that you're an agreeable bunch. I, I wish I could take it that way, but I think some of you nod for other reasons. You're like Eutychus when Paul preached a long time. I hope you don't have the same tragic results. But slumbering here implies a transient light sleep. But then it says that they slept, they all slept. That's imperfect Greek verb, the tense of the verb. It suggests a continuous act. Some nod for a while, but they know where they're at. I've been tempted, and this happened in Bible college once. A guy went to sleep in class. Poor guy, probably like me, had work second shift and then come to class. And his fellow classmate nudged him and said, the professor called on you to pray. And he got up and stormed the bastions. And everybody was like, what? Where'd that come from? Some nod and some are in a deep sleep. You say, Pastor, how do Christians sleep? All right, I'll tell you how. And if your neighbor's asleep right now, nudge him. How do they sleep? Well, their eyes start to shut. They no longer see things as they really are, like we talked about earlier. They don't see the shortness of time. They don't see the emptiness of this world. They don't see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And one thing that they for sure don't see, they do not see the glory of Jesus Christ. Their eyes are shut or shutting. They grow dull of hearing. They've heard the same voice in this pulpit for 22 years. It's easy to tune it out. I know, some, I know a pastor in a distant state. I asked him, why are you retiring? You're not even old enough to retire. He said, it's time for me to move on. They need somebody else. They've gotten used to everything I have to say. He told me that right here. People grow dull of hearing. They've heard the same voice for years. It no longer startles them. They grow drowsy in prayer. Oh, how difficult it is to shake off spiritual lethargy that keeps us from getting importunate and fervent in our intercession. I wish you could, honestly, I wish you could just be in my shoes for one week and see how the devil fights prayer in me personally and in the church. We have time for everything else, but we don't get down to business praying. Beloved, it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, I ask you, will you do something intentional to stir yourself up to pray? Whatever it takes, it's time to provoke one another to prayer. Will you come back tonight to pray? Will you get, take advantage of a Zoom link this week to pray? Will you get earnest and enter into a covenant with someone else to pray? We have not because we ask not. The church in America is asleep. It's asleep. The results of Christ tearing in the, for many is they just get into a deep sleep. But not only is the coming sudden or delayed, I'm sorry, the, the coming is unexpected, it's sudden. At midnight there was a great cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Now listen, midnight 
is usually the coldest and darkest hour close to it. It's a time when everybody else is sleeping. In fact, if you will look up there in the 44th verse of chapter 24, just a few verses before chapter 25, Jesus said, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. When we least think it's going to happen is when it's going to happen. When we're tempted to be the most careless and negligent and let our guard down and to go on a vacation and forget the Bible for a few days. We don't even put it in the suitcase. We think, well, I've got it on my phone if I really need it, but I've got to take a break from things. Yeah, David said that too on the rooftop. In verses 7 and 8, the foolish virgins went to the wise and they asked for oil. I don't know where they ended up getting it, but the answer from the wise virgins is so pointed. Not so, lest there be not enough for us and for you, but go and, and, and buy oil for yourselves. Doesn't that tell us this, that you cannot be saved for somebody else? You've been given the Holy Spirit for yourself and no one else. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ within you is not transferable. Oh, thank God for the influence of others. Thank God as we come up on Father's Day for the influence of godly fathers, godly parents. It's so powerful. But may I just remind you, you may have had the godliest mother, the godliest father that ever lived, but their righteousness cannot save you, only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it must be credited to your personal account. It must be personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have enough oil to give somebody else. They've got to get it for themselves. The professing church, the defining event, which is the sudden return of our Savior, though it's delayed. But I close with this solemn thought, number three, the shocking verdict. The shocking verdict. The closing verses to this parable are so sobering. While the foolish virgins are going out to buy oil, I don't know who was open at midnight. Maybe they went to friends and just bought it from their friends, like the friend who went to his friend at midnight and said, give me three loaves. But somehow they went to buy oil at midnight. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes in, into his house with a procession. It's probably the house that he's prepared for his bride. And the Bible says in the latter part of verse 10 there that the door is shut. And the only words that are recorded that come from the mouth of the bridegroom in this whole parable are found in verse 12. They're directed to the foolish virgins who knock and say, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he says, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Only thing he says that's recorded. Notice that it's said in response to their desperate pleas. These five foolish virgins returned from the oil vendors, whoever they were, and they found the door shut and they cried, Lord, Lord, open to us. Don't you know they were desperate? They were importunate. They were intense. Some expositors call this one of the double knocks of Scripture when a, a, a name used as a term of address is repeated. It's 15 times in the Bible we see this. Abram, Abram, Saul, Saul, Martha, Martha. Absalom, Absalom, and we could, Lord, Lord. When people do that, they're really earnest. 
They're really praying. And some people will pray for the first time when they're denied entrance to heaven, but their prayer will be too late. They'll be like the ones Jesus described at the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably this Lord, Lord passage came to your mind. When people will say to Jesus at the last day, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in your name, in your name done miracles and cast out devils and done many wonderful works, and he'll respond to them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. That ought to shake us. There's stark terror in that. There's awful finality in that. Those words, I never knew you, are an expression of final rejection. What did Jesus mean? What does the bridegroom, we know bridegroom represents Christ here. What does the bridegroom mean when he says, I never knew you? By the way, he didn't say, I knew you once, but then you lost it. He said, I never knew you. What did he mean? He means, I never had a saving relationship with you. Oh, he knows a lot about us. He knows our name. He knows our works. Jesus said that about the, one of the churches in, in, in Revelation. He knows our works. He knows our hypocrisy. But he does not own us if he says those words to us. How tragic. Let me just wrap it up by saying at the crisis hour of our Lord's sudden return, with the judgments that accompany, because when Jesus comes, He's coming to judge the earth. And when He does that, the true condition of professors is going to be exposed. The mask will come off. The fair flower of the flesh will be blasted away. Paul talked to the Romans about the day when the secrets of men's hearts will be made manifest. That's when it'll be. It will be final, folks. There's no appeal from that verdict. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no probation. There's no second chance. There's no forgiveness. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be again when God shuts the door. No man can open. It's shut. It'll never open. told you about a man that was over in India in the famous siege of the Lucknow as the rebels stormed that fortress. All of the British soldiers there found a tunnel that they had dug in anticipation of that event. But he lost contact with them. He didn't find the tunnel right away. When they finally found him, his face was ghastly white. And he was saying over and over, lost, lost. Everyone who makes a profession of faith is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. I'm thankful I can tell you that. But not everyone will be admitted. Not everyone will enjoy it. Do you know do you know that you know? 
that you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And I don't ask you, do you know him? I ask you, based on what Jesus will say here, does he know you? Let's pray. Oh God, would you awaken us? Would you disturb our carnal complacency? I look at the church in America and nothing shocks us anymore. We have to go to an amusement park. We have to go to a haunted house to get a scare. Oh God, help us to heed our Savior's admonition. Watch, watch therefore. Help us to be on guard against sin and temptation that nothing steals our love, our longing for His return. Help us to be on the lookout for that return. Speak to hearts. Make the application as only your spirit can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.